Welcome, everybody, to the latest edition of Star Cells in God. This is the podcast where we talk about discoveries that are happening at the frontier of science and uh, spend some time discussing their theological and philosophical implications. How do these discoveries help us see evidence for God's existence and the reliability of Scripture? Uh, my name is Fuzz Rana. I'm a biochemist and a Christian apologist. I work for an organization called Reasons to Believe, which is the organization that sponsors this podcast. If you want to know more about Reasons to Believe, please go to our website, uh, www.reasons.org. Check out uh, all the articles and the videos and, and, and uh, audio files that we have available to you to explore uh, broader questions about the relationship between science and the Christian faith. Also, you can follow us on social media, uh, RTB underscore official. And then last but not least, visit our YouTube channel, Reasons to Believe One, and there, uh, make sure you subscribe as you gain access to all kinds of video content, short videos, long videos that, again, deal with a wide range of science faith questions. And then last but not least, set uh, a reminder for yourself so that you get notified the next time a new edition of Star Cells in God drops. Uh, I have the pleasure of being joined uh, uh, by... Uh, Dr. Cy Gart. I was about to say joined in studio, but actually that's not the case. Joined, joining us via Zoom, uh, thanks to technology, is Dr. Cy Gart, who is a biochemist. Uh, he is uh, someone who I admire and respect enormously, uh, someone who uh, I am grateful to be able to call a brother in Christ, and someone who I'm becoming friends with. And so I'm so appreciative of that. Uh, Cy and I, uh, see a lot of things probably in the same way. A few things when it comes to science faith we differ on, uh, but uh, that's okay. The, those points of difference actually help us if we handle them well to really gain a deeper insight and a deeper understanding into the world that we live in and, and how the creator's fingerprints can be seen in, in the creation. So I'm so grateful again, uh, Sai, for you joining us today. Thank you. Uh, uh, Sai and I had a, a conversation that uh, as part of the Star Cells and God franchise uh, uh, several weeks ago now, uh, and I would invite you to take a look at that particular uh, podcast if you haven't seen it. it the title uh, is uh, 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 The Work of His Hands. Uh, I t titled the podcast based on your, your book, uh, The Works of His Hands. And in that uh, particular episode, Sai shares his story about how he came to faith in Christ, and we talk about different uh, perspectives on science and, and the Christian faith, and um, explored the question, um, it, is evolution a, a process that God could use to create? And so today would be maybe part two of that podcast, because one of the things that I'd hope to do in that podcast is ask Sai about a recent paper that he has published uh, in the peer-reviewed scientific literature about the origin of uh, fidelity, high-fidelity replicators, which is a very important uh, step in the origin of life process. And so we didn't get a chance to do that. So I'm so grateful, Sai, that you're willing to come back on the program and, and talk a little bit about, about that discovery and then 
when you finish that up, I've got a discovery about uh, the last universal common ancestor that I would like to talk about. The difference is you're going to be talking about original work that you did yourself, whereas I'm going to be describing the work of other scientists. So anyway, so, so grateful again that you're part of the, the, the podcast. And before maybe you get started, I'm going to uh, turn the floor, the floor, the proverbial floor, or the hypothetical floor over to you. Uh, uh, maybe just reintroduce yourself to our, our listeners and to our viewers, and then please make sure you also share ways in which um, those people that are watching and listening to this podcast can connect with you if they would like to. Okay, well, thank you, Puzz, and, and thanks for the introduction, and thanks for having me on again. It's, it's really delightful for me to be able to talk to another biochemist who's a Christian, and uh, and we have a lot in common, as you said. So, uh, yeah, I, um, I just very quickly, I, I people who watched the last episode will know, I started out life as a very militant atheist in an atheist family. I came to Christ slowly, uh, partially through my studies of science. I studied chemistry and then biochemistry and PhD in biochemistry. And then through the work of the Holy Spirit, I eventually did come fully to Christ and have been ever since. Um, I'm retired. I, I had an active research career in several universities. I'm currently retired, but I'm still active in theoretical biology. And uh, the nice thing about being retired and free of grants is you can do research in anything you want. <laughs> nobody, nobody cares. Uh, and I've been fortunate enough to get some of my work published, uh, and including uh, the paper that you mentioned, Fuzz, uh, in um, in a journal called Acta Biotheoretica, which is a theoretical biology journal. Uh, I, yeah, in terms of getting contact with me, uh, my website is very simple. It's cygard.com, uh, and uh, that's also um, my Twitter handle. Uh, <laughs> It's nice having an unusual an unusual name. Uh, there aren't too many Cygarts around. Uh, I am also the author of a prize-winning book called The Works of His Hands, as Fuzz mentioned, which was published in 2019 by Kriegel. Uh, it's still available. It's still doing fairly well. So uh, if you're interested in, in more about my story, uh, that would have a lot in it. Also, several chapters on science and faith and how they... Uh, do well together. So um, <clears throat> what I'm going to be talking about is an area of biology that is not often discussed, especially when people talk about uh, beginning of life, abiogenesis, or even evolution. Uh, and that is the issue of cellular replication. And I want to start out by stressing why that is such an overlooked, neglected, and incredibly important issue to deal with. We could start with a quote from Charles Darwin, who said, if variations useful to any organic being occur, assuredly such individuals thus characterized will have the best chance of being preserved in the struggle for life. That's a statement of natural selection. And then I underlined the next phrase, which is, and from the strong principle of inheritance, these will tend to produce offspring similarly characterized. What Darwin was saying, because he had no idea what the principle of inheritance was, but he knew that 
you know, tall people generally have tall children and, you know, black cats often have black cats as kids. So there is a principle of inheritance that is present in all of biology. And that is critical for Darwin's theory of evolution, because as we'll see, if it didn't exist, evolution couldn't work. Now, what does he, so, so to translate what Darwin meant uh, when he said strong inheritance, what we now, that what we now know that that means is that cells, living cells, undergo extremely accurate self-replication. Now, this is taken for granted by all biologists and a lot of other people. Everyone knows that cells divide, and when a cell divides, it gives two cells, which are very much like the original parent cell. Um, but let's go into that a little bit more in detail. We, here's a, a very simple slide about the whole idea of natural selection. If we have tall giraffes and short giraffes, which differ genetically in whatever genes are involved in having tall necks, after many, many generations, the tall giraffes who can eat, reach the trees and eat leaves, will do much better than the short giraffes, and they will eventually die out, and we have a natural selection to giraffes with tall necks. This is a very standard uh, natural selection idea. Uh, but that idea assumes, and it's often not stated, but it's assuming that there is accurate inheritance. So if there was a giraffe here, which originally had a tall neck for whatever genetic reason it had, um, its children, all of them, should also have tall necks. If they didn't, there would be no selection going down the line because natural selection does not occur in one generation. It occurs over time. So if we had a situation where the uh, the genetic inheritance was not very accurate, and you could get a giraffe with a tall neck who gave birth to both tall neck and short neck giraffes, evolution would not occur. So there has to be some degree of accuracy in the inheritance in the reproduction of organisms in order for evolution to go anywhere. Now, here's something that may be startling to a lot of people, and I don't see it discussed very often, and that is that accurate self-replication is a property of life and only of life. Nothing else has accurate self-replication. Nothing. Not even DNA. Not any chemical. Not crystals. Nothing else replicates itself with the accuracy of living cells. Uh, that's very important because, it's, as I said, it's often overlooked, and it's, it's an issue that is central to the, the issue of the origin of life and evolution and everything else in biology. Now, why do I say that? Well, let's say you were looking at a house, this house here, and you really loved it. You wanted this house, but you couldn't buy it. So you decided to see if you could make an exact copy of it. And not just a copy of the outside of the house, but everything inside the house as well. 
So that includes everything, the furniture, the books, uh, the pictures on the wall, the rugs, all the systems in the house, 100% two identical houses. Could you do that? Well, you might be able to, it'd be very expensive. You'd have to hire all kinds of contractors and artisans and people who could you know, find this, the right books and do everything, but it's not impossible. But one thing that is impossible is that this house could never make a copy of itself, not even close. And if there was some way that a, that a house or a factory or a machine or anything could make a copy of itself, it probably wouldn't be a very good copy. And it certainly wouldn't be able to be as accurate as these pictures indicate. But for cells, not a problem. Every day, every minute, every second, millions of cells in your body are replicating themselves with 99.9999% accuracy. That's how accurate cellular reproduction is. And the, ray, and, and the reason it's so accurate is because we have in our cells uh, amazing systems that replicate the, the genetic material, which makes all the proteins. And uh, this includes both the replication of DNA in cells and the, and the production of proteins in the ribosomes. Both of those processes are incredibly accurate. And the, the final result is this 99.9999% accurate replication. That's astonishing if you think about it, because this goes on in every cell in the world. And one can only think, well, it couldn't, life could not have started that way, right? I mean, what kind of a miracle would it have taken for the first cell to say, oh, we're going to make copies of myself and it's going to be absolutely perfect. No, we can assume that this was something that had to either evolve or somehow or other develop. Uh, and, but that raises a problem. And the problem is that the high, very high level of accuracy in biological self-replication could not arise without evolution. That's what I just said. Okay, we expect that there had to be some evolution to get to that level of accuracy. But you need that self-replication, that highly accurate self-replication to allow for evolution. As I said at the beginning with the giraffes, you need accurate self-replication or there's no evolution. So you have these two statements which create a circular reasoning fallacy. Accurate self-replication is required for evolution. Evolution is required for accurate self-replication. So how does that work? Well, this is the issue that I wanted to address. And the question uh, was, if the high level of accuracy in bio biological self-replication could not arise without evolution, uh, what is it? How much accuracy do we actually need? Okay. In other words, we want to get replication. We want to get high accuracy replication, and we want to get evolution to begin. 
So maybe you don't need 99.999% accuracy to start with evolution. Maybe you can do it with less. That was the question I asked. How much do you need? And there are several models to think about it. Here's one model, which is that there's no threshold. You can get evolution starting even with you, if you have zero uh, replication fidelity. This axis, F, is the degree of replication accurate fidelity going from zero to one. So it's a percentage. On the x-axis, we have a parameter called P, which stands for the probability of survival. And this, this just indicates how fit is that cell? Is it able to survive in between replicating? If a cell dies, then obviously nothing's going to happen. There's not going to be any evolution. There's not going to be any further issue. But if a cell has a very high level of uh, probability of survival and it has a very high level of replication accuracy, you know, at some point we're going to get uh, evolution going. And the question is, at what point is that? One, as I said, one possibility is it could start at any point, even if you have very, very low survival probability and very low replication fidelity, you might get evolution going. You might get survival of cells and they can further evolve. That's one possibility. The other possibility is that there's a threshold below which, and this would be a threshold for replication fidelity, that if you have below a certain threshold for replication fidelity, you don't get survival and you can't get evolution. So you have to have, and according to this model, here it's at 0.5. So in other words, you'd have to be able, you have to be 50% accurate in your replication fidelity in order to begin to get growth of cells and evolution can start. A third possibility is that, yes, that, that uh, threshold is there, but there's also a threshold for the probability of survival. And I have both of these set at 0.5. So what this says is that if your probability of survival and your uh, replication accuracy are both at 50% or higher, you're fine. You can now get evolution. You can get things even better and better and better. You'll eventually reach 99.999%. But if you're below those thresholds in either one of those two parameters, there's nothing to do. You can't, you can't go further. So with these three models, the first thing I wanted to do is see if I could figure out a way, theoretically, I don't have a lab, so I'm not doing experiments on this. But I've, at least is there a theoretical way to see whether or not such thresholds exist? And that was the subject of the paper. Now, to do that, and, and this is a very complicated slide, which I apologize for, and uh, I don't expect anyone to look at this and say, oh, okay, that makes sense. But uh, it's up here because if if you can see this, uh, you may be able to look at it later and get some idea of the kind of model that I was using. What I looked at was I starting starting with one cell. Uh, I go through, in this case, looks like six generations. That cell gives rise to two cells. Okay, every cell here gives, it's, it's a binary replication. 
And those two cells, each cell has a value of P, that's the probability of survival, and a value of F for replication fidelity. In this slide, both of those parameters are one. So cells don't die. Their probability of survival is perfect. And they have perfect replication fidelity. So every cell gives rise to two cells. And eventually, you end up with, I guess this is 32 cells, all of which still have the same probability of survival. And this is what you get. This is what we have in modern life. You start with one bacterial cell on a, on a dish, and you wait six generations, you'll have 32 bacterial cells or whatever kind of cells you're looking at, assuming that there's no toxin, which would lower the value of P, and assuming that they're modern and they have a very high replication fidelity. But we don't think, as I said before, that at the origin of life, either of these values were so high. They must have been lower. And the whole thing I wanted to do was to figure out what is the minimal value that you need of these two parameters to be able to get living cells that don't die out? So an example, for example, is here where these values are less than one. Here, the probability of survival is 90%. Okay, so 10% of these cells will die just because, you know, they're not that good at, what, at, at living. <laughs> and we know that there are cells that, that are that way, and probably many cells at the origin of life, or maybe all of them, were that way. And the uh, replication fidelity here is down at 70%. So what happens is the values here are that you see, the numbers in the boxes are the... Uh, values of P, which start out at 0.9, and they could stay at 0.9, but every now and then you get a mutation because the, uh, the degree of mutation is one minus the F, okay? So if it's 70% uh, perfect fidelity, that means 30% of these cells will undergo a mutation. And sometimes that mutation could lead to a value of P that is so low that the cells die. And those are shown by the red arrows and the Xs. So now instead of 32 cells at the end of six generations, you will have 14. Now that's okay. That still means that they're going to grow. This value here, 1.695 is the growth constant. And with that, anything greater than one tells you that this cell population will keep growing. Not as fast as the other one, which had a value of 2.0, but anything below one would mean this cell, this cell line is going extinct. It cannot maintain itself and evolution cannot help it. Okay. So this is the general model that I used. And I can't, I'm not going to go into all the algorithms and all the methods to test, but I then looked at changing both of these parameters until I reached a conclusion, which was what, how low can both of these parameters get where, uh, before you reach a value of the growth constant less than one? Because below that level, you're below the threshold.
This is, uh, before I show the results here, this is just one experiment showing the growth curve, which as you see here, these, these growth constants are very low. They're all much less than one. And this is at a very low level of, uh, excuse me, of survival probability, P. And as you see, increasing the, the uh, fidelity rate from zero gives a very slight and with great deal of variation uh, increase in the growth constant. So at low probability of survival, the, the increase in uh, replication fidelity doesn't help very much. That's one, one experiment of the many that I ran. Uh, the same thing is true if you do it the other way. If you keep the fidelity of replication low, you can find that increasing, uh, sorry, made a mistake there, uh, that increasing uh, probability of survival does not help. So you need to have both parameters at a certain level. And the question is, what is that level? Well, here we have, uh, we can ignore some of this is, is very technical, but what we have is the uh, value of P, the probability of survival from zero to one. And on this axis is the mutation rate, which is one minus F. So it's the inverse more or less of the fidelity. And as we see, as we increase the probability, uh, we get no life, no matter, I'm sorry, uh, if, if, the, uh, if the mutation rate is very low and the probability goes up to 0.5, there is no life possible. But then as we continue to increase the probability of survival, depending on the mutation rate, we may eventually get life because we need mutations in order to, uh, to allow the probability survival to increase. Now, this is kind of hard to understand looking at this way. So I replotted it in terms of the, uh, in the way that I had before with thresholds. And what we find, I show that again, here it is. This is the actual data, the reality. And what we find is, that anywhere along this line, okay, so this includes both survival probability, which goes all the way up to one, and replication fidelity, anywhere along this line is the border between no life and no evolution, and yes, life plus evolution. So for example, if you have a survival probability of 0.7, you must have at least a, uh, a uh, replication fidelity of 0.5 in, e in order to have a viable cell population. So everything to the right of this threshold, you can get further evolution and you can get the, the current uh, degree of, uh, of growth and living cells. But if you're below that, okay, so in other words, if you have a lower replication fidelity, and a lower probability, probability of survival, there is no hope. Now, what this implies, the fact that there are these thresholds in both cases, implies that the evolution of replication fidelity was not a smooth, continuous process. It mm -hmm. couldn't have been. Because you can't go, for example, from here to here. <laughs> okay, 
because you can't go anywhere in this in this region. You need life and evolution in order to do this. So if you're anywhere on the left side of this line in either with either case, uh, there's nothing that happens. So therefore, we're talking about the necessity for a discontinuity, which is something that happens in evolution a lot. I mean, we it's not this is not unique. Uh, we know that there are events that occur during life history that uh, have caused a major change in the evolution of species. One of those events is the is the origin of mitochondria when a bacteria was uh, was uh, taken over by a living cell, and the mitochondrian cell, the the bacterial cell, didn't die. It became a organelle of the other cell. And that allowed for uh, the for very high energy efficiency uh, in in life, and that was a that was not a continuous change, which is which is what Darwin had originally proposed. That was a, a probably a very discontinuous uh, event. But the difference is that this discontinuity had to happen at the very origin of life in in protocells, in cells before they were really uh, Luca. Okay, because it would never get to Luca if you didn't have at least this level of replication fidelity. And how you got there is a mystery. We don't know that, but it had to be a discontinuous process. Let's see, I think. Okay, now this is uh, my last slide, and it kind of summarizes the paper. Uh, which, as I mentioned, was published in uh, Acta Biotheoretica in 2021. And what I found was that the key parameter, which is the growth constant, K, and remember, this has to be greater than 1, is roughly equal to a very simple function, which is the probability of survival, P, times F plus 1. And this factor actually comes in as well. This is uh, has to do with the uh, the death rate uh, of one of the four descendants, but that gets very technical, and it's a minor correction to this. The main uh, the main focus of this equation is the first term, p times f plus one. And uh, what I wrote in the summary was that a quantitative assessment of continuity and other evidence obtained for a saltation non-continuous evolutionary process, starting from low to moderate levels of survival probability and self-replication fidelity to reach the high levels seen in modern life forms. So uh, that's basically the paper. And of course, now we get to the implications. Uh, this was, uh, as I mentioned, this was published in a scientific mainstream journal, and I did not include in the in the discussion uh, anything about the metaphysical or theological or philosophical implications of this. But those implications are fairly strong. And that includes the idea that uh, unless we can solve the mystery of how we got the early part of this going, in other words, from zero to say 0. 0.5 uh, in, both, in both of these two parameters, uh, we don't know how we could have possibly gotten living cells to replicate and continue to evolve. Uh, and 
I don't really have any good scientific ideas to, to propose for this. Um, what I think is needed is either some you know, new law of nature that we don't know, and I think that would apply to many situations in biology, uh, or we can simply say, well, this was a, mir this was a miraculous event that uh, was part of God's creation in the origin of life. Uh, that may be true, but that's not something that I can, you know, use in a scientific paper, nor is it something I'm really just completely satisfied with, because as I said last time we were on, Buzz, uh, I like to know how God did it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it would be good if we can come up with some other law of nature created by God that allows life to begin to exist and even to continue uh, in ways that are so remarkable that we can do nothing but just sit there and wonder and, and praise the Lord. And I think I'll stop there. Well, wow. Thank you, Cy. That was excellent. That was uh, really, really uh, well explained. I think it, it was a, a very clear explanation, you know, and, um, you know, I, I would, you know, hold to the, uh, the view that discontinuities you know, in life's history are a, a place where perhaps a creator was involved in some way. And, you know, it's to me, there's really two questions. One is, you know, do you see a signature for the creator's involvement? And then B, the second question is, well, what was the mode of divine action, <laughs> right, that brought that about? But one of the things I, I find remarkable is when you look at the the history of life, there seems to be these, you know, what uh, Eugene Coonan at one point labeled, you know, these big bangs where when life goes from one regime of complexity to another, or maybe even proto-life in the case of, of your, you know, the work you're describing, it seems to happen as a discontinuity yes. in his Eugene Kuhn point points out in this paper published, gosh, 2007, maybe, that there doesn't seem to be these intermediary grades. That's right. So it's, you know, the origin, he, he doc identified the origin of protein folds, the origin of life, you know, the origin of, of different group bacterial and archaeal groups. Uh, I think you see it at the origin of eukaryotic cells with the eukaryotic Big Bang maybe even you could argue the origin of body plans, you know, and, and so to me, those seem to be places where at least, you know, current evolutionary theory breaks down. Yeah. I, I think multicellularity should be put in there too. Mm. Because, uh, you know, if you, I, I, Kunin has talked about, you're right. He's talked about this a lot. And he, in several of his papers, in fact, I quote him on continuity he gives a great definition of Darwinian continuity and then talks about how it's not always there. And, uh, you know, and he's, he's right. But, you know, multicellularity is really strange because here you have these single cells, which are entities unto themselves, and they're competing and cooperating with other single cells as it fits them. And natural selection is acting on them as individuals. And now all of a sudden, or whatever it took, you have groups of cells which are part of one body, and now natural selection is acting on the whole body. Yeah. 
So the slime mold is no is a group of cells, but the cells are not individuals anymore. They're part of something else. And it doesn't matter if a cell dies, if the body survives. Yeah. That's like a whole shift. It's, yeah. it's an incredible shift, and nobody knows how that happened. It, it involves a huge amount of unknown processes that have had to occur to allow allow that to happen and it's one of those things that isn't really i don't think being very carefully addressed so anyway yeah i agree i i think that discontinuity is a critical feature in the history of biology it's not addressed enough uh, many people just kind of smooth it over they act as if everything is a giraffe you know you get a short neck and then a long neck and that's natural selection. And okay, that that's probably not this. That's probably continuous. Okay, that's probably gets a little longer, a little longer, a little longer. But you know, as you said, those discontinuities are where the are where the action is. Yeah. Well, in in these transitions that you know I just listed, in that in that you added to, are like the key transitions in life's history. It's not like these are just throwaway transitions that you can ignore. You know, you, you're not going to get, for example, complex multicellular organisms if you don't have the emergence of eukaryotic cells, right? You know, you, you, you're not going to get, you know, complex multicellular organisms if you don't have the origin of multicellularity. So these are critical transitions in life's history. And it's a bit eerie, I think, you know that that this is where these discontinuities seem to be found right and you know for me you know as somebody who's an old earth creationist i see those points of discontinuity are as places where god is intervening now well, you know, it's, mechanistically it's, how god does it you know <laughs> yeah well i just want to say one thing here there are some cases where there is some evidence for a mechanism uh for example, the origin of vertebrates occurred after uh, two rounds of whole genome duplication. And whole genome duplication is very rare, but it allows for a huge amount of mutations to occur. Right. So that, but that doesn't say anything about the hand of God here, because how did how did that how did that whole genome duplication occur? You know, it's it's not so, and and there are other examples like that, uh, I believe. Uh, transposon insertions had to do with the origin of mammalian pregnancy. There's lots of these mechanisms that are known, but then there are others which are not known. And even knowing the mechanism, and this is a general rule, knowing mechanism doesn't tell you why something happened. Right. When it happened. So I, I think looking for mechanism is good, and we should continue to do that. I'm not against it. Uh, but I think we need to go further and understand how these mechanisms occurred and why they occurred, what, what force is is pushing them. Well, you know, this is interesting. And uh, it, and I think at this point, it might be fun just to continue this conversation and let, let's not worry about squeezing my my discovery in. We, ah, only, disappointed. There, <laughs> well, but, but I think there's, I think what we're, what we're hitting upon is something that really is very important and very interesting in my view. So I'm not saying that so you feel bad. I think this is this is a fun discussion. But 
you know, um, a few years ago, we, we have a, a scholar community, people that are scholars that volunteer with us. And um, there were there's two friends, a, a guy who's a physicist and a guy who's an Old Testament scholar, and they team up and they've written a number of articles for us. And they've written a number of books as well that they've, they've published based on some of the articles that they've written for us. And um, at one point, they produced a series of articles that are still on our website uh, about this concept that they dubbed hypernaturalism. And this is getting into the, the mode of divine action. And, and their argument was uh, they con contrasted that with a, with a concept they'd labeled supernaturalism, where they said, you know, if God is creating a universe with laws, it doesn't make sense that God would routinely contravene those laws to bring about his creative purposes, that he would work within those laws. But what then constitutes a miracle, and this is where I think your work is is beginning to dance in that in that on that ballroom floor, is that it you see the right just right thing happening at the just right time with the just right magnitude, you know, so that 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 was is where the the miracle occurs. And so as I thought about their concept of hypernaturalism, particularly in light of the origin of life, this is really a place where you could kind of bridge God's role as creator with scientific exploration. Because in other words, you would have mechanism at work. It's just that that, that the way that mechanism cashes out is, again, highly precise, highly fine-tuned, you know, in 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 its in its right. application. So, you know, let's take this idea of the, the you know, the, the uh, genome duplication events that led to the rise of vertebrates. Right. As you mentioned, it's a rare event, right? And, and so if we were, uh, as genetic engineers going into the lab and we're trying to do something like that, we would be functioning hypernaturally where we would work within the laws of nature and we would come up with some kind of methodology where we could duplicate genomes, but we would be working again within with the laws of nature, taking advantage of the mechanisms that already exist. It's just that as laboratory practitioners, we can we can short circuit <laughs> this this exploration of all kinds of possibilities and just simply intervene within the laws of nature to bring about this unnatural event that then sets the stage for something that we want to then do with, with, with what we've generated. So why couldn't, you know, God operate in that same way? When we go in the lab and do chemistry, when we go in the lab and do molecular biology, you know, genetic engineering, synthetic biology, we're operating hypernaturally. So could this be the mechanism that God used? Yeah. You know, I think, I think that, that's great. Um, and 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 that what I really like about that is that it it supports, I think, if I get, if I understand this correctly, it supports the idea that that there are missing natural laws related to biology which God is using. So uh, so in other words, it, it, as you said, it doesn't have to be a miracle every time outside of the laws of chemistry and physics, but it's it's God working with the laws that exist, and in this case would include some we don't know yet that are involved in the uh, 
the origin of life and the and and the diversity of life and everything else, and and you know uh, what I think is is important to understand is that if there is such a law um, or a theory that we don't know yet, it's very likely that just with all the other laws that we've discovered, this is going to be another pointer to the creator because if going along again with what you've been saying, what I've been thinking recently is that, uh, you know, we have these laws and forces of nature, but what are they? I mean, what is the strong force? What is, what is gravity? What, where do they come from? And, you know, the answers are, well, there are, there are force fields and there are particles and standard model, of, but those, they're not explanatory in the sense of, you know, ultimate, ultimate, uh, foundation for these forces. What they are is they're they're God's part of God's creation, and that's how the universe works. And so I I think the discovery of of some other newer force that can explain something in biology would be uh, it, it might be a victory for naturalism, but it's also a victory for you know the the, the creation model of of a, of a divine being. Yeah. 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 No, I mean, uh, hypernaturalism, that's, that's very, very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's an incredibly useful concept that, that, um, that uh, provides a way for God to intervene in a way that we could, we could study, right? Not that you want to put God in a box, but that's a way that a, a scientist could still study mechanistically what's gone on. Exactly. Yeah. So. And and it avoids this whole God of the gaps thing, which I'm always being accused of, you know. <laughs> right. Right. Um, well, you know, I mean, it, it's interesting because when you, you look at some of the work that people have done, you know, where they're trying to generate these, you know, self-replicators too in, in the lab, what, what strikes me, and and this isn't, you know, an insight that's unique to me. I've seen original life researchers complain about this too, is these self-replicating systems that you know that are created through in vitro evolution usually it's a combination of in vitro evolution coupled with rational design oh, <laughs> where, yeah. where they're sitting down and they're they're looking at what they've got as a molecule and then they are making strategic changes you know so that these systems and so they're not true self-replicators in the way that original life researchers need them to be but again, this is another example of hypernaturalism where scientists are utilizing sure. you know, the, the evolutionary mechanism to and directing it in such a way as to create these ribozymes with you know desired properties. But then they they still have to go in and manipulate them. And and um it just it, again, it 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 in light of what you've described, it's very clear that you're not going to get a self-replicating system if it doesn't involve some kind of rational design, some kind of intelligent input that is manipulating the, the, the mechanisms of nature. And then, you know, supervening on top of that to bring about other changes, you know. And the other thing you're not going to get is you're not going to get anything near the kind of accuracy that you need. I mean, a lot of those, self-replicating uh ribozymes or or even uh you know 
well, no DNA. It's actually, they're all ribozymes, basically. They're all ribozymes based on RNA. Uh, they're not very good. <laughs> they don't do it very well. I mean, it's great that they do any kind of replication, and they, but it's nowhere near the kind of accuracy we're talking about. You know, it may be 10, 20, 30%. Uh, it's not going to help. And, and anyway, that's just the replicator. We also have... When we talk, when I'm talking about cellular replication, I'm talking about the phenotype. So that's not just the, the genetic material that has to now be translated into the proteins. So you need a protein translation, protein synthesis system, which is also 99.99% accurate. And that's remarkably <laughs> impossible to even imagine how that could assert, you know, arise without. I mean, I don't have to tell you, but the audience should know that, you know, the, the system that biology has for making proteins is beyond anything that anyone has ever dreamt of in, oh, terms, yeah. in terms of making stuff. You know, there's, there's no factory or, or, or manufacturing system in the world that looks anything like the complexity and the accuracy and the incredible genius that, that is the way that ribosome does it. And, um, you know, how did that happen? I mean, you know, and this is this is where our friend Eugene Kunin, who is a atheist, there's no question, has said this looks like this is looks like a real example of, of irreducible complexity. <laughs> I mean, you know, yeah. he wrote that and uh and it's true. I mean, how how do you get there? And so even hypernaturalism in the way you're describing it, for us, we're not we're not at that point. We're we're not. We can't make a cell, no matter what we have to work with, we cannot make a cell. And I don't think we're going to be able to for a very long time, if ever. Uh, and, and so hypernaturalism is a great idea, and I think God uses it, but God is also God, not us. And uh, we're not up there yet, and maybe never will. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, you know, when you, when you talk about, you know, even the high fidelity well, you really, you know, when you're looking at high fidelity of cellular replication, as you're saying, it really is a cup, coupling of high fidelity of DNA replication, yes. and the high fidelity of, of protein production. Both together. You know, and, and, and you've got these, really, these interconnected chicken and egg systems, right? right you know, where you're not going to get high fidelity protein, or sorry, DNA replication without, you That's know, right. having high fidelity proteins being it's produced. Do it. That's right. <laughs> but but likewise, you're not even going to get you know uh, you know protein production at the ribosomes because you're dealing with systems that are are you know these RNA protein complexes. So you need proteins in order to for proteins to be produced right. high fidelity. And you know this is kind of like the inverse problem to what you're describing is that if you start producing proteins with low fidelity, you wind up in an auto-destruct cycle because the ribosomes now are going to be even less efficient. They result, and, and then they're going to be producing proteins that are less efficient, which then assemble into ribosomes that are less efficient. So you, you, you wind up with this auto-destruct cycle. So um, yeah, very, very, very interesting problem. So how do you generate you know, in the, in the transition from the RNA world to the DNA protein world, how do you generate, you know, these, th this machinery that's going to be operating with sufficient fidelity that, um, th that, yeah, that you get that high enough 
cellular fidelity and replication. Yeah, <clears throat> I mean, it, it, it's a real puzzle. And I, I, I did have some suggestions from folks saying that, well, look, at the origin of life, probably it's better to have low fidelity because then you have more mutations and that gives you a high, you know, a better, that, that allows the cell to, to do better. And that, I tested that. And, and uh, there was, and one of the slides had, a, had something called DBR and that was the, the, the ratio of deleterious to beneficial muta uh, uh, mutations. And yeah, today the, 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 the ratio in modern life, the ratio is very high. There are many, many more deleterious than beneficial mutations. That was probably not the case in early life. It may have been, and I went all the way down to equal numbers of even, even more beneficial than deleterious. And it didn't make much difference strangely enough so that that's not the answer and um it's you know we don't know what the answer is but uh at least we know there's plenty of questions we have to keep asking <laughs> <laughs> well you know you know it's interesting to me because i've i've had the 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 privilege of interacting with a number of prominent origin of life researchers uh, over the years and they're a very interesting breed of scientists because yeah. they 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 relish in the fact that they're working on these problems, which there probably are no answers for, or at least in the immediate future. And you almost get the sense that that if uh, somebody actually figured out how life originated, they would probably be deeply disappointed because yes. all the fun problems are not are are no longer there to work on. So it's a very interesting breed of, of of scientists who are actually remarkably refreshing in terms of their their realistic perspective on how challenging the problem is yeah. you want to talk you want to find out how challenging the origin of life problem is don't talk to christian apologists talk to original life researchers because they're very glad to tell you how how hard a problem it is oh, yeah. but yet they're also extremely optimistic in the midst of that that those those dismal prospects of success <laughs> yeah and i that's true i mean jack sostak has has shown you know uh, the, the the level of of progress being very very slow <laughs> and very very little uh but they they're very brave people because yeah they're facing a, a huge challenge it's true yeah yeah, well, you know, and and you know, I I deeply admire Jack Shostak and am deeply impressed with the work that's coming out of his lab, particularly some of the stuff that he's done with uh, trying to create self-replicating systems, yeah. you know, with protocells. And you know, when you you look at the work, it's it is science at its best. And this is to a point you made earlier. We're so far from you know creating even a close a crude fast simile of a of a of a cell, let alone a, a, a bona fide cell. But but yet even these these protocellular systems that people like Shawstack are making in the lab require again enormous amount of ingenuity. Oh, sure. You know, it's not just simply having to be precise in terms of manipulating the systems under highly controlled environments. There's a real ingenuity that undergirds their their strategy, their experimental protocols. You know that you you when you see what they they've done, it's it's a marvel. <laughs> it's a marvel to behold. You know. Yeah. 
Um, well, there was, uh, I don't remember the author, unfortunately, but a paper came out a few years ago um, pointing out the uh, the problem of investigator involvement in <laughs> in Origin of Life. Of course, Jim Tour has pointed this out many, many, many times. Yeah. Uh, you know, that, that uh, chemistry by itself just doesn't do the stuff that we need it to do. It just mm -hmm. won't do it. Yeah. We have to do it. So yeah, yeah it's it's um it's a very hard problem. And uh uh I I maybe I feel a little guilty at, at this paper for making it even harder, but <laughs> you know, uh as you said, we we need to face these these uh you know transition points which go all the way back to life origin, but occur throughout evolutionary history and you know and even beyond multicellularity you know as you said the the uh, the, the splitting of domains and and uh even some cases of of evolution in recent times for example where are we when we talk about this is a whole nother topic which i'm not going to but i'll just mention it you know where are we when we talk about the evolution of human neural function and consciousness and yeah i mean we're nowhere there's is no actual scientific basis for understanding how that happened well you know and, and this is an, an area that's highly contentious now that you brought it up this is one of the areas that i love to, to spend time thinking about and, and working in and that is you know the, this idea that that humans you know are we different in degree or kind right and i obviously take the position that we are exceptional but it's remarkable to me that there's a growing number of of anthropologists who would agree that humans are different in kind and what they they attribute that difference to is our capacity for symbolism and and this is another type of problem similar to what you've identified and you know when it comes to uh, you know the the generation of 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 self-replicating you know you know cells that that have a high probability of survival and that is how do you account for the origin of symbolism? Mm. You know, and, and so when you look at at people trying to use evolutionary mechanisms to account for the origin of language, for example, it's very challenging to go from animal communication to what humans do with with open-ended, you know, generative language, right? And I just have been recently interested in the whole idea of our capacity to perceive beauty you know, right. and to create beauty, this is our aesthetic sense. And again, it's a similar conundrum. You just can't go from, right. it's, 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 it's a discontinuity to go from a creature that has no concept of beauty to a creature that recognizes beauty and then is, is right. obsessed with, with creating beauty. So these are places where, again, you see that, that discontinuity, even right. related to, to who we are as human beings. So yeah. Fun stuff. <laughs> well, Sai, I, I really, really appreciate you taking the time to be with us. This is this has been a great discussion and uh looking forward to having you back on soon. That'll be good. Uh, and uh and uh I I may save my discovery for for then so because it's involving the origin of life, but uh You'll go first next time. How's that? <laughs> okay. We we can do that, but but uh, I, I, you know, I really uh, am. I'm, I'm okay. I'm really glad that uh, 
that you had a chance to really lay out your your idea, your work, and that we had a chance to really unpack it a little bit. So this, I think this was a, a great episode. I enjoyed it at least. Well, I, I tell you the truth. It's actually the first time I've ever done this on YouTube or on, on any, any discussion because, uh, you know, usually I'm interviewed by philosophers or people who, you know, would not get through the first or second slide. So, you know, it, this is a unique opportunity for me to actually show some of the data. I hope I didn't lose too many people, but, uh, you know, hopefully the, the point came across. So uh, it, it was really great. I appreciate the chance to do it. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I didn't realize that. So I'm 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 honored that we get the, to be the ones that get to uh, premiere your your really fine work. But but uh, again, thank you, uh, you know, for for being on the show. And um, I, I'm just going to go ahead and bring everything to a close. I really appreciate everybody who's watched this episode. Please make sure you tell your, your friends and those people that you interact with about uh, star cells and God. Uh, and I just want to remind you to go to our website, www.reasons.org, uh, and um, uh, check out the resources that we have. Uh, make sure you follow us on social media, RTB underscore official. And then last but not least, go to our YouTube channel, Reasons to Believe One, subscribe, hit the notification button for Star Cells and God. And I'll just leave you with this closing thought that the more we discover about science, the more that we have reasons to believe. Until next time. <laughs>